Hey everyone, welcome back to all my listeners. Now I hope you're all having a great day so far. I know I am. And if it's your first time finding me, thank you so much and welcome. Welcome to a brand new season, season six. Now, guess what you guys, can you even believe that I am the proud mama of a soon to be high school graduate? Can you even believe where has the time gone? It has just flown by. And of course, my son and I suffered through this crazy pandemic like all of you did as well. You know, I've been talking about this on my podcast in previous episodes and I post things on LinkedIn. But yeah, the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic definitely did a doozy on us. And the youngsters at the high school were definitely affected, right? From their trying to navigate Zoom school instead of going in person or when they went in person for a hot minute, there were barriers put up and plexiglass between the desks and it was just crazy. And then they had a little health center that would test the students. We had like a pediatric clinic that was at the high school. It's a really good school. But regardless, um, in terms of depression and not being able to see their friends all the time, it was definitely crazy for these past couple of years. So I know I, for one, am very happy that this PHE is supposed to be lifting in July. But today, as I'm recording this episode, I get whispers of HHS is planning to extend the PHE once again past July. So past midsummer, there's nothing definitive or confirmed yet, but I am hearing whispers and you know me, I will be keeping my eyes peeled on that new information. I'll try and talk about it on my podcast. I'll definitely post it on LinkedIn, but I will keep us all up to date, but I do believe it will be extended once again. So anyways, you guys, welcome. Welcome to my third episode of season six. Today is Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. My name is Sonal Patel, and this is the Paint the Medical Picture podcast series. Now, all right, you guys, guess what? I am bringing back a special guest today. I know I've kept the red carpet rolled up for a bit, but I'm going to unroll it and welcome a good friend of mine, Elizabeth Solomon, who just happens to be an HCC and ICD-10 coding expert. So I can't wait for all of you to hear our conversation together. She's wonderful. And I'm going to be diving into my compliance tip today with the new codes for the booster doses of Pfizer and Sanofi GlaxoSmithKline. And of course, I'll close out today's episode with some inspirational words on vision and leadership from Adlai E. Stevenson. If you've checked me out on LinkedIn, you know I'm all about compliance and protecting our physicians and valued healthcare professionals when it comes to the business of medicine. I hope this week with me brings you enough to take back to your organizations, to want to dive in deeper, to use my tips and best practices to ensure success. I hope this podcast will help you boost the quality of documentation capture and improve coding accuracy as you help your providers paint the medical picture. If you like what you're hearing, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss another episode. Please write in a review and kindly drop me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to my podcast. I'd really love your support. And as always, a friendly disclaimer. Remember, I'm bringing you the news, 
current healthcare industry news, my compliance tips and recommendations based on my over 10 years of experience in front office, in back end, in coding, and in billing for multi-specialty physicians, in compliance, and in auditing for both ENM and in surgical operative reports. These are my opinions alone and are not to be construed as legal advice. So let's get into a very special newsworthy that features my guest today, Elizabeth Solomon. I'm so excited for today's session with her. Now, first, she's been certified through AHIMA and received her CCA in 2011. Elizabeth found medical coding to be a really tough industry to break into, and she accepted whatever position she could in or near healthcare in a series of administrative jobs. She was joyful when she was accepted into the Broward College HIM Associates program. Later, she got her first position as a remote HCC coder with Altegra Health just a couple months before graduating. Now, it's good to know that Altegra Health became Change Health while she was employed there. She believes it is that position and her degree that opened the doors into the world of medical coding for herself. She was lucky to end up working for three of the largest HCC processing companies in the industry, including Change Health, Advantasure in the Emerging Markets Division of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, and at Optum United Healthcare on a special CMS contract project. Now, in one of those positions, she had the great benefit of working for physicians turned data processing geniuses, as well as operational executives that have previously worked for CMS, and her teams received 100% accuracy awards from J.D. Powers during her last two years there. Now, with all of that experience under her belt, Elizabeth applies all of her ICD-10 diagnosis acumen into the great provider-centered work she performs currently at Acevedo Consulting Incorporated. Today, she serves on the board of directors for her local AAPC chapter in Weston, Florida, and she inspires others by sharing her many stories of her earlier days and motivates them to just go for it. Welcome, my friend. It's so good to see you here today. Thanks so much for being on my podcast. Thank you, Sonal. I'm really excited to be able to participate in this with you. I have the highest regard for you. You know, I'm a big fan. I love it. Well, the feeling is so mutual. Welcome. Welcome again. Now, you know what? It's so clear to me from your bio, and I hope my audience gets this just as well, right? That you've been entrenched in the diagnosis coding side of the healthcare claim cycle. Now, I know I turn to you so very often in the everyday work that I perform when I have ICD-10-CM questions and what I need to be looking for when I audit claims. So why don't we start with the concept of HCC coding? Hopefully you can explain why you think HCC coding is so hot right now. Well, Hot is a funny word to associate with HCC coding. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, but it's a, it's a good word. It's a good word because there is a lot of attention to HCCs in the industry right now. And there is a very close relationship between the HCC coding and the diagnosis coding, but it's not the same thing. 
as, as I'm sure you understand, but I know you probably have a broad base of listeners from the really nascent coders to the very experienced. And we want to just be sure for the new people that they understand it's not the same thing, right? Perfect. So there are a lot of diagnoses that we need to pay attention to the specificity that ICD-10 is providing. Um, and I don't want to go off on a tangent, so just to stay with this, that are not necessarily HCC specific. Um, and just to, uh, well, let me just say that for right now. So one of the reasons that I think we see so much attention to HCC coding is that enrollment in Medicare Advantage plans has literally doubled um, since 2011. And I'm looking at a graph right now, and I don't know if you're able to post any follow-up documents with your podcast, but I, I have a couple graphs here. And this is from an OIG report. And the OIG report, I don't know if anybody saw it, but it was about, um, it's a really hot one, speaking mm -hmm. of hot. <laughs> um, and I'll just give you the heading of it in case any of your listeners want to look this up on the OIG site. It says, some Medicare Advantage organization denials of prior authorization requests raise concerns about beneficiary access to medically necessary care. And in the course of giving their complete report on that, they gave the statistics showing that roughly 12 million enrollees were in Medicare Advantage in 2011, and in 2021, it's 26 million. And when you have that many patients that are being paid by that reimbursement methodology, of course, it's gonna demand attention. One other thing is that there was an OIG report that came out in February, 2020 about the stroke code. It was a very small sampling. They sampled, I think, 592 cases, Sonal. And, and I could be off by a couple there on what I'm quoting you, but it was that low, it was under 600. Mm -hmm. And they found that out of that small sampling, and this was specific um, targeted charts going from the Medicare fee for service or traditional Medicare, into Medicare Advantage plans and validating, was this the right code? And it was the acute stroke code. Mm -hmm. And they found that out of all those cases, only two were passed through from traditional Medicare to Medicare Advantage with the correct stroke code. In the fee-for-service, it doesn't matter that you're reporting an acute stroke code. But in HCC, you're getting a reimbursement associated through a very complex formula associated with that acute stroke code. So it made millions of dollars of difference based on their projections from that 600 sampling. And it is true. Um, so there's a great attention to... Um, are you hearing that background noise? I'm so sorry, there's some drilling going on in my building. I hope you don't hear that. Um, so there's a great attention to the accuracy or the validation of the diagnosis coding. And let me just say one other thing about that. Um, there's a line in the ICD-10 manual and the overarching guidelines that says it should be enough for a physician to say that the condition exists for you to code it. And this is true, but that it's doesn't true. mean you're going to get paid for that diagnosis and the reimbursement model that you're working with. 
right? Whether the facility is the ASC, the inpatient hospital, critical care, outpatient, and those different reimbursement methodologies set a criteria, if you will, for reimbursement. And so this is the important part of HCC coding, which we can talk about a little bit more in depth, um, but that's so you understand ICD-10, yes, it's enough for the, for the doctor to say it exists, but it is it the right code and is it the reimbursable code? Not necessarily. Wow, I mean, it's all so incredibly complicated and you made it easier for my listeners to get a handle on it. Um, yes, on this podcast, I have disclosed many of these OIG reports that do come out year after year. Um, I believed I just spoke about the beneficiary um, report that you discussed earlier. I talked about it last week because uh, those numbers are huge, right? Our patients need care and all of those prior authorizations are being denied is um, grotesque, right? Our patients are the ones who are suffering. So no, thank well, you for those explanations. Um, yeah, it's concerning. And if, you know, um, the, the thing about that being concerning, if, and not to get off track onto that subject, was that not only were patients denied, but providers who'd done the right thing were being denied. And that exactly. wasn't right either. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely true. Now, um, can you go back just for one second and define what HCC is for my audience? Well, HCC stands for hierarchical condition coding um, category, sorry. And it really was born from the, M, the CCMCC DSRG that we see in inpatients. Um, so, in, and I'm sure, you know, if you're working with PCS coding, you're familiar with um, the inpatient groupings right? The payment right. groupings, the MSDRG models that are part uh, uh, developed from the CCMCC categories. And so there was a study done back in, was it 1997 as part of the Balanced Budget Act? And they were, because computers existed in hospitals, they could get data from the hospitals about what if we did this and this and that. And the this and this and that <laughs> was basically um, quality measures, would it improve care, would it drive right. down costs? Right. And it was so successful that the discussion between those, and this is one of the things I try to emphasize to my physicians when I'm doing educations to physician, or I have to tell them about codes, and you get so many physicians that say, oh, I'm not a coder. <laughs> um, but no, you are. You are by the nature of your work. And so there are all these authorities that sit at these tables that are physicians and people that have worked in CMS and so forth that have these meetings. And, and they basically said, uh, you know, if we could do this in the hospital, imagine if we could do this across the country. And the first hurdle was, well, we don't even have computers in all the doctor's offices right. that we reimburse. Mm -hmm. So they had to drive electronic data. And the way they drove that was incentivize, incentivize, and then penalize, right? right? And then once they got all the computers out there, they said, we can launch ICD-10. And ICD-10 gave them the specificity that they, could do, that they could extract data that would help them to understand some of the uh, nuances in the outpatient environment that could apply the same type of quality measures that they had done on this study inpatient now in the outpatient environment to um, both 
drive down costs, but benefit uh, outcomes. Absolutely amazing. And it all started way back in 1997. Well, really, that's, that's crazy. The, yeah, that was like when the mm-hmm. uh, when the egg was in the womb and <laughs> right. the sperm found its way. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> it wasn't incubated. It wasn't a full birth until 2015. And even now it's very much in its uh, baby stages. Mm. Mm. Profound. Now, you but know what? from that, we got into HCC coding. That's where it comes from. Exactly. Exactly. It's amazing how much that, times have changed, right? Yeah, what that is, just for those who may not know but are listening, is it's the it's the grouping of uh, diseases with uh, similar burdens of care. To make it as simple as I can. Thank you. No, who's not that's familiar. perfect. That's perfect. Oh no, a lot of my audience, right? Um, so many of us are very savvy in procedural coding, CPT, Hicks, picks types of coding, but the ICD-10 diagnosis stuff is what trips us up in all of these newer reimbursement methodologies as you just disclosed. So yeah, and also, you know, in all of the auditing work I see, um, I know I've talked about this in previous episodes, but our ICD-10 has been around since 2015. And do you have any recommendations and tips for our provider offices that are on the smaller side um, that don't necessarily load up all of the um, ICD-10 code books into their EHRs. So when I'm auditing and I find a diagnosis that is not as extended for laterality and specificity, when I provide education, right, you have to make those types of comments that the documentation clearly shows that you're addressing some sort of a lesion on the left foot, right? But there's no diagnosis code that matches that specificity of the lesion as being on the left foot. Um, so do you have any words of wisdom in those types of situations when you don't see the level of specificity in coding when it's actually captured on those claim forms that go out the door and to the payers? Well, a lot of times our procedural codes do provide um, for right and left, either within the code or bilateral or with the um, modifiers, right? So you can always use your modifiers if it's specific to the procedure. But if you're, depending on what it is, there was a big, um, you know, one of the things that caught all the headlines, I don't know if you caught it, but um, in the um, new guidelines for 2021, fiscal year 2022, I should say, <clears throat> the ones that went into effect as of 10-1-2021, the big buzz at the time was they repeated this twice. <laughs> they repeated okay. something that was in the guidelines and they repeated it again. And it was about the laterality. They were uh-huh. basically saying, mm. if you're coding unspecified on something that's laterality, this should rarely, rarely be used. Right. And my, um, my crystal ball tells me that from an HCC perspective, mm-hmm. the next thing will be is they will stop paying for unspecified codes. Right. So the advice then becomes to the small practitioner, mm-hmm. you need to find a way to build these codes into your system and be alert for them, right. unless you want to start seeing reduced payments. Mm. 
Excellent. That's good crystal ball warning, right? Perfect. Yeah, And just as an example, real quick, is we see this with the polyneuropathy. Mm-hmm. Polyneuropathy was paid as an HCC and everybody was, you know, passing through polyneuropathy unspecified, polyneuropathy unspecified. And then they dropped it from the HCC. They're like, you know, we'll still pay polyneuropathy when you can give us specificity about it mm-hmm. in these conditions. Um, so it's not that big of a crystal ball, but <laughs> it is the crystal ball effect, you know, and you kind of correlate. So that's what we see when we see the, um, the authorities give us guidelines, emphasize guidelines, you're going to see the takeaway in payment next. Mm, perfect. Perfect, Elizabeth. All right. Now, what about these other buzzwords, right? There's meat versus rad V. that? Hopefully you can meat. explain that to my audience. Meat you know, I've grown to hate meat and I'm an HCC, I mean, coder, so to speak, that's mm-hmm. my specialty, but it's, um, it's something that you learn when you're early on in the industry, especially the HCC industry, but everybody knows about it now. And it basically stands for monitor, evaluate, assess, and treat. And it was a guideline that you would say, And in HCC coding, we really want to pay attention to our documentation and our notes that we're Mm -hmm. talking about what we did, not Mm -hmm. what we're planning on doing, because um, HCC is prospective payment for a retrospective activity. And so they're not going to validate a diagnosis for something you're planning on doing, but they will validate a diagnosis for something that you've done. So it's not that you will monitor the insulin levels, but for a diabetic patient, but that you have monitored and this is what you found. So M is monitored and there are other variations of what the M's and the A's and the E can be, but basically it's monitor, evaluate, assess, and treat. Okay. And if you're working in an HCC production house and you follow those guidelines, you can pass the diagnosis through, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I see the Mm-hmm. I see this as an HCC diagnosis. It looks like they, uh, they checked the A1C level. Mm-hmm. They evaluated that it's stable. Mm-hmm. Um, they assessed that the um, patient is staying within their um, diet modifications, mm-hmm. and they're going to treat it by um, continuing the same medication for the next three months and follow up, right? Right. Or um, something like angina, you know, there maybe there's a note there where you've got a patient that's got angina and the note says chronic and stable. So chronic and stable has traditionally in the industry been a pass through. Oh, Mm -hmm. chronic means I've assessed it, stable, I've evaluated it. Um, I can pass that HCC, that diagnosis through for an HCC, but it's been, you know, overused. It's gotten to a point where I hate chronic and stable because when you're at the other end where we're Mm -hmm. working in auditing Mm -hmm. and CMS is looking to actually pay that um, practitioner or facility, they want to know that there's clinical evidence for that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And that may not be obvious from MEAT, but it is from RADV or risk adjustment data validation. So meet 
is in the note, did, was it monitored, evaluated, assessed, and treated, but RADV is payer concern of mm -hmm. risk adjustment data validation. So do we have clinical evidence <clears throat> that this condition was addressed? With the diabetic patient we just talked about, we have that A1C being reported, so yeah. But the patient who's got angina, and this kind of really bugs me because it's, and angina is a really small reimbursement factor. So you really want to get this right, not because you're going to lose a lot of money, but because of the integrity of the note. And if you have a patient who has angina, and again, when we're dealing with Medicare, which is risk adjustment, well, you know what, I should back up on that. Let's just take this moment right now to say, there is Medicare risk adjustment, but the ACA options that are out there in commercial plans and other commercial payers have their own types of risk programs. So, and they, they, they model off of the CMS HCC program, but they're not exactly the same. Just so for mm. people who are out there working with an ACA patient, mm. it's a different model, mm. um, just so you're aware. But I'm working with charts every day of patients that are 60, usually 65 and older. And a lot of them are in that 80, roughly 70 to 80 age range. So you do have patients who have, you know, one procedure or another, and they've developed angina. And maybe they're not running to the emergency room every day with the angina, but they're constantly trying to manage this symptomology associated with a heart disease usually, right? Right. Um, and if you have a note where they're working off of templates and on angina, it says chronic and stable, is that going to get passed through in an HCC production house off to CMS? Most likely, yes, because right now chronic and stable is still accepted. But when we're looking for on that other end and we're doing one of the things a lot of people don't realize when you're in HCC production or abstraction is what happens at the other end of the formula. And CMS does uh, protect our Medicare budget, right? And so they don't want to just pay everything. So they do a sampling of all of these facilities and providers that go through their budget office. And they do a sampling on the back end for accuracy. And they will take that error rate and apply it to the entire check. So if they sample, let's say, 100 just for round numbers, 100 charts, and 10 of them have an error, you're going to have a 10% error rate that's going to come off of whatever that other budget amount was. And what happens, that's where VADV comes in, your risk adjustment data validation. So now I'm looking at a chart, and I'm seeing angina, and I'm seeing chronic and stable. And maybe there's aspirin in the medication list, but there's no nitro-specific medication that would address an angina condition in a chronic sense. So I had an aunt who was in her 80s. She would regularly get these, these episodes and she would take, the, usually the instruction is take one of your nitro pills, take a second one, call the emergency or the ambulance, right? Um, but I don't have that in this chart. I see aspirin and aspirin can be used for angina, but it's used for a lot of things. So it's not specific to angina. So that doesn't validate the diagnosis. The patient's not having any symptoms in the note. That doesn't validate the diagnosis. All I have is chronic and stable. I'm going to reject that diagnosis. 
Because if you have chronic and stable angina and there's no medication, where's the condition? Now, it could be there if you have documented this patient had a cabbage, they had a stent, they're 85 years old and a nitro seems too severe, so you're managing it with the aspirin, now you've got data validation, right? But if you don't have those additional details, all you have is a pass-through from an HCC production house based on chronic and stable. I see that going away because it's been abused. Amazing, amazing. It's still in place, but... It's still in place, but um, as they're looking at budgets, and because of that OIG study, Sonal, with the stroke code, it alerted them that there are a lot of diagnoses in traditional Medicare that validate for payment in HC, not validate, but are approved for payment in HCC Mm -hmm. environment that are not valid. That are not valid. And you've explained that so well. My goodness. See these little steps that they're making to try Mm -hmm. to buckle down on that. Right. Right. No, your, your insights and your explanations here are clear and simple for my audience. You've made me understand so much better what the difference is between meat and rad V. So thank I think you. the angina example is a good one. Yes. It's a really yes. good way to see that. That's perfect. It's perfect. Good. good. I'm glad to help. As you know, I always like to help. <laughs> yes, you are. you are. Thank you. All right. Now I also want to probe and get some of your thoughts, right, on these new, even more, right, a thousand plus diagnosis codes that are being proposed for 2023. (laughs) And I know you always attend these ICD-10-CM coordination and planning meetings that happen twice a year. So I'd like to know some more about those inner workings and what you get from those meetings. Well, you know, I'm a nerd. And I love those meetings. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually came across those meetings in the course of doing deep dives on, um, as you know, I work for Acevedo Consulting. And with, when I I had all of this experience when I came to Acevedo that was valuable. Mm -hmm. But Gene Acevedo's insistence that we not just go by what's here or what's there, but what's the source of that information mm-hmm. and really driving down that made me go all the way to these meetings. And I was right. like, oh, I love this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me spend two days on a meeting talking about diagnosis and procedural codes. Cause I still, you know, having had my first orientation with inpatient, I, I missed having any exposure to the procedural codes in the inpatient environment, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah. So anyway, the ICD 10 CM proposal meetings, I want to let your audience know that these are open to the public and you can go to the ICD 10, um, site on the CDC and Mm -hmm. get the link to these meetings that are held two to three times a year for proposing and approving and discussing the codes. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that's really great there is you can get resources of the proposals, So I use those proposal resources with my physicians to help educate them so they can see why this code is changing and they're banging their heads against the wall because now they're getting invalid code reports because they Mm -hmm. didn't use the invalid blah, blah, blah. So so they're really great from that perspective. But also, you know, one of the things I, I think is important for us as coders and auditors, aside from being guardians of the medical record, is that we we try to 
make order out of the chaos. Just like a writer, you know, there's a wealth of information in the universe, what we could write a story about, but the writer has to take certain things and make an organized, meaningful story. And as coders and auditors, we really do that with the information. There's a ton of information and we can make it all very confusing for people. But what our value is, is to say, okay, let's break it down. Let's mm-hmm. simplify. Let's mm-hmm. zero in. Right. And so when we look at these um, 1,100 codes, it was the breaking news, 1,100 mm-hmm. plus codes. It was like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. And it's breaking news, just like on CNN, if you, you know, the salacious uh, headlines get the draw. But half of these codes are really because of the new vehicles everybody's using, right? So just real quickly, um, when you start to go through the uh, introduction or the proposed codes that are going to be in the book, and you see what they are, you're like, oh my gosh, and even the headlines have said this, that roughly almost half of them are, and I'm just scrolling down while I'm talking to you, to give you a, a, a word for word for anybody who's not working with this example, electric assisted bicycle driver in, injured in collision with pedestrian or animal in a non-traffic accident. And then it goes other motorcycle driver injured in collision with pedestrian or animal. Then electric assisted bicycle passenger. For example, there's a new code V20.31XA, and that is in that same grouping. And it says person boarding or alighting an electric assisted bicycle injured in collision with pedestrian or an animal. And this continues on. And it's not that this is not important, but that's the bulk of these um, like 500, almost 500 codes. And what's in, and there are sequela, you know, we have the A for acute. So really you'll see this besides in the um, emergency room setting because you do have the injuries that can lead to delayed healing, Mm -hmm. sequela, and um, uh, that's all they have. They just have the A, D, and S is the suffixes. But, um, and this is the benefit of ICD-10. Obviously they want to study this to this level of specificity and it does make sense you've got so many different types of vehicles right now (laughs) why wouldn't we want to capture this right Mm -hmm. but you shouldn't let it overwhelm you and just know that most emrs are going to guide you and i think the the key or and it's going to be in the books for those who are still working with books Mm -hmm. but the key takeaway is to realize that these accidents are going to be looking for more specificity And rather than give you a little specificity now and do more code changes down the road, it looks like they've tried to think of all of them. We'll see. (laughs) So, um, but another point, there are some other interesting things here that I would like to point out to your audience. Um, There's a whole new group of long-term use codes. So we're used to long-term use of um, statins and reporting that or long-term use of insulin. Mm -hmm. But there are, and and I'm bringing it up, I'm not going to go into them right now for our little bit of podcast time, but we should look at these because there's, there are several other long-term use, um, I don't want to say medicines, but agents Mm -hmm. that um, should be addressed. And then um, they did add a few codes to the um, SDOH codes, the social determinants of health. 
And of course, there was the introduction of codes in April, but they've made them official with the fiscal year 2023 for the un specific to that COVID-19 for unvaccinated and partially vaccinated um, in the Z codes. Mm -hmm. And then I want to come back up to the beginning on a couple of things, something that I found interesting, and it really is not for those who are list tuning in for risk adjustment, this is not risk adjustment. You know, we have really hardly any female um, related codes that become HCCs and hardly, I don't think there's any obstetric codes that are HCCs. Hmm. So for those who are listening for HCCs, you're not affected, but for those who do work with diagnosis coding, it's important to know that they have drastically expanded codes related to endometriosis. Hmm. And I find this interesting. I want to go back and actually look at the proposal for this because it looks like there's, let me just tell you real quick, there's um, um, let's see, line 288 to line, uh, oops, uh, 288 to line 422. So that's what, like 160 codes, just yeah. about the endometrius. Hmm. So that's new and that's big for people in OB-GYN. Um, and then something that I uh, think we all deal with, and it is HCC coding, aneurysm of the aorta was just a few codes. Now there are a couple dozen um, for specificity. It's always about they're wanting to grab more specificity, right? Um, and then last year, and this is important to um, kind of uh, touch on, in case anybody missed it, and anybody working with H, this is going to be more meaningful to the HCC coder, um, but there was a, when you have high platelets, it can be an indicator of certain diseases. And so you were able to query that if you were in a query situation um, where you could say these high platelets could indicate this, if you agree, you know, address this basically. Um, and then last year they introduced new codes and I, I wanted to um, bring this up for you. Um, make sure I have last year's reference here. Give me one second. Yeah. Oh no, it's this year's. Wait, 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 wait. Um, here we go. So last year it's the code for homocysteinemia and homocysteinuria. And it was not expanded, but they introduced a separate code. So they said, if this is not assessed as homocysteinemia, and I'm, forgive me if I'm saying that wrong, pronouncing it wrong, then use this other thrombocytosis code, which is a, so the, um, what had been high platelets and or this actual disease, homocysteinemia, homocysteinuria, it was an E7211 code. And they said, if it's not this disease, but high platelets, use D75, 838, or 839. And they made a new mm -hmm. category for that, right? Mm -hmm. So this is something where your clinical support has to be checked. So anybody getting that code the previous year, if they're working off templates, they need to validate that. And this is how diagnosis and HCC interact zonal. Right. So up until now, they could validate E7211 just with high platelets. Mm -hmm. Not up until now, up until 10-1-2021. 10, 
But as of 10-1-2021, that was not enough to validate that E7211 code. Hmm. What happened this year, which I found interesting, what's being proposed is they're doing a similar breakaway. They're putting it into that same D75.8 code that they introduced last year for the thrombocytosis, and they're using it for thrombocytopenia. And so thrombocytopenia has traditionally been in the D69.6 code, or if you had more specificity, right around D69. Um, but now they have the D75.8s when they're heparin-induced, other heparin-induced, and non-heparin-induced. And the new D75 code for the high platelets is a non-HCC code at this point. Mm. My guess is this will be too. Mm. So not all your thrombocytopenias are HCCs, but some of them are. And so they're using the specificity to drive that reimbursement um, category into mm. the HCC. Mm. So to give you a deeper intricacy of how those two work together between yeah. the meat and the RADV, right? Mm -hmm. Very important, mm -hmm. very important nuance. Um, and then some other things that, uh, let me see if, oh, the other big thing is up until October 1, 2022, we only have six codes basically that are used for dementia, the FO150 or 51 code, the FO280 or 81, and the FO390 or 91, and that's for vascular dementia, dementia second to another disease such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or another one that the physician would state. And the third one is unspecified and all other types of dementia. But as of 10-1-2023, there are gonna be a, a more than 60 codes. And what they're capturing is in this, and I have the proposal on that, and that's also through the um, ICD-10 CNM, um, website that you can get to through the CDC website, um, you can get this proposal too. And there's also going to be one coming either that came or is coming out next year, expanding cognitive disorders in a similar way. But what they're doing is they're specifying first for mild, moderate, or severe, which we're used to seeing with depression coding. And then in addition to that, when there is our behaviors, which is what your one suffix would be, um, it's going to capture agitation, psychotic disturbance, mood disturbance, anxiety, or other. Um, and just for all those listeners out there, because this is a pet peeve of mine, other doesn't mean you can just choose the code and put other. You need to state what the other is that you're using it for, um, or it's not compliant with ICD-10 overarching guidelines for usage. Was that too much? Did no. I get too dirty on you? No. Your knowledge and depth of insight. Incredible. All these facts that you've presented for my audience and myself is simply profound and so necessary, right? Because not all of us um, have the bandwidth to remember everything, right? So it's always good for me to spotlight on guests that have their own expertise, right? And allow them to shine. And that's what you've done here today. So no, I appreciate the nerdy details as you call it, because those of us in this space, we are all, each one of us nerds in our own right. So I embrace it. Thank you for presenting us with all of these insights. It's just been incredible, incredible, the amount of detail 
and knowledge that you possess. So I'm so happy. And I would give props to all of the physicians that have contributed to this information. Um, You know, many of these jobs that I've had, Mm -hmm. I've been educated by the physician directors. Oh, for sure. And Mm -hmm. so it's, Mm -hmm. um, and I say that because so many physicians can be resistant to coding, but just know that the coders are usually getting that information from physicians. Don't feed up on us, we're just the middlemen. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness. Amazing, Elizabeth. Just amazing. So I know it's almost time for you to go, but I have one more question for you. Um, You know what? You have disclosed your past with us today. You've done so much already, but I know you still have a lot more that you want to give. So what do you see for yourself on the horizon in the next five years? Oh, well, um, there's a question. I know. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, no. And, uh, you know, if I can, I don't know if we have enough time, but if I can just say real quickly, just one thing uh, that I wouldn't want to leave this conversation without mentioning for your readers. I didn't realize we were quite wrapping up, but I just, not readers, your listeners, your audience. (laughs) Um, The F32A code that came out last year for depression This is similar to what we just talked about with the E72 codes and the thrombocytopenia. Mm -hmm. That code came in like a whisper, um, but it really changes all your clinical documentation for depression. And anybody who's not catching it right now is going to catch it on the back end in risk adjustment coding. So um, without going into, you know, too much time, um, and I can give you, if you can add this to your website, I can give you the proposal that spoke to that. It's just a one pager, oh, sure. but it's going to mean that if you have MDD, it used to be really briefly that you could code unspecified depression and it would default because of overarching guidelines and the ICD-10 index to MDD depression, but not anymore because the F32A is unspecified depression, which means that any of the codes that you have as MDD depression that was unspecified depression, you need to either change the code or you need to be sure that you're validating your MDD instances in your documentation. Um, And so that kind of segues into what would I wanna do within the next five years? Where do I see myself? I do have to tell you that I live on the ocean in Hollywood, Florida. Mm. So I kind of live in paradise every day. Wow. Not to make anybody jealous. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm good with that. Um, you know, I, I, I think um, that's just been a real blessing. And then <clears throat> to be able to share this kind of information in a, <clears throat> you know, either coaching or mentoring. Um, coders. And I also really love the rhythm of HCC abstraction and uh, working for the Acevedos. It's a lot of deep dives and you don't really develop a rhythm when you're working those deep dives. And I miss the rhythm. I miss feeling like, oh, I just did a 80 charts today. And, you know, boom, 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 boom. You just, you kind of like, you know, you're just rolling through the charts. You can't do that when you're doing auditing and physician education. And so I wouldn't mind um, figuring out a way to do some of that and um, just be happy in the day-to-day. I love coding. I love feeling that we're 
both helping the physicians to earn the money that they deserve to make for patient care, and at the same time, being guardians of the medical record for integrity and protecting our Medicare budget for everyone. Well, I love it. I love it, Elizabeth. I know you can do all of those things in the next five years. You're incredible. You're incredible. I appreciate all of your insights today. I know you and I could talk about this stuff for another hour, um, but is there anything really important and provocative that we left out in today's conversation that you just want to highlight really quickly for my audience? I think we touched on everything. I just really encourage them to look at that F32A code and how it's impacting um, because we do have a lot of uh, depression diagnoses across the United States. Mm -hmm. And the introduction of this code is basically saying we want to evaluate how many of these are major depressive disorders. And there's going to be a lot, but how many are not? Exactly. And, And I think if everybody had one takeaway, it's the takeaway that I got in my associates program, which was, you know, they under, and this was the year of transition that I was, I just was so lucky to have the, you know, I got to intern at North Broward Hospital District. I got to work at these three big, three big companies, but I also got to go through my associates program during the year of transition from ICD-9 to ICD-10. And that was just so insightful, both from the textbooks, but also from the program and the program chair. Mm -hmm. And I can't speak highly enough about that associates program at Broward College for those who are in the area. Um, But um, they made that point to us that, you know, you're going to be the first class going out there with this understanding that the reason we're doing this additional specificity is related to this balanced budget act. And it has the promise of helping to protect our Medicare budget. And you're gonna be the speakers of truth out there. And it's a hard burden to walk with sometimes, but you know, you remember that message. And if I could give one takeaway to all of your listeners is to remember that as coders, we are the guardians of the medical record mm-hmm. at, for integrity and consistency and relevance and accuracy. And beyond that, we are also contributing to protecting the Medicare budget and helping to contain healthcare costs. One of the last things I did in my associates program, and it's a long story that I'm gonna make really short for you, is I did a study on the healthcare costs around the globe. I targeted specific other countries that I had targeted in an earlier project in my, in my course program. And so I wanted to be consistent from the beginning to the end. And the big difference of healthcare costs in the United States compared to all the other countries, especially the single payer countries was the administrative cost. It's 30% of our budget. And the hope behind ICD-10 was to drive that down. And we all play a part in that every day. And it's hard right now because of the launching of ICD-10 and working out all those kinks. But my hope and what my vision, what I see is that as we work with this within the next few years, say three to five years, we're going to start to see the benefits of all this helping to drive down the cost. Fingers crossed. Maybe toes crossed too. (laughs) Fingers crossed, Elizabeth. Great, great words to end on. Thank you so much for everything today. And now it's time for my best practice tips in trusty tip. 
Now, in today's compliance recommendations, I'm going to be talking about yet another off-cycle addition or two or three or four to add into your CPT code book. Now, the AMA, that's our American Medical Association, has announced an editorial update that's been made to our current procedural terminology, our CPT code books. Now, these new codes are going to include the CPT codes for the COVID-19 boosters from Pfizer and Sanofi GlaxoSmithKline. Now, the Pfizer booster has just been authorized by the FDA for use in children ages 5 to 11 who have completed a COVID-19 vaccine primary series, while the Sanofi GlaxoSmithKline booster candidate is still proposed for use in persons of ages 18 and older who've also completed a COVID-19 vaccine primary series. Now, for quick reference, this new product code and administration codes assigned to each of the COVID-19 booster candidates, and the FDA did just approve the one for Pfizer, so it's no longer a candidate, but it has been an approved booster. So the administration codes for the Pfizer FDA-approved booster include CPT code 0074A, for immunization administration by intramuscular injection of severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2, coronavirus disease, COVID-19 vaccine, mRNA, LNP, spike protein, preservative-free, 0.2 milliliter dosage, diluent reconstituted, trisucrose formulation, booster dose. Now, the CPT code for our product and administration codes for the Sanofi GlaxoSmithKline booster candidate is CPT code 91310 for severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2, coronavirus disease, COVID-19, vaccine, monovalent, preservative-free, 0.5 milliliter dosage, adjuvant ASO3 emulsion for intramuscular use. Now, there's also CPT code 0104A for immunization administration by intramuscular injection of severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2, coronavirus disease, COVID-19 vaccine, monovalent, preservative-free, 0.5 milliliter dosage, adjuvant ASO3 emulsion booster dose. Now, the short, medium, and long descriptors of all of these new vaccine-specific CPT codes can be accessed today on the AMA website, along with their other recent modifications, which if you recall, I do disclose these things on my podcast. So there are up-to-date modifications to the CPT code set that have also helped streamline the public health response, right, to the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the COVID-19 disease. So keep your eyes peeled on that website. They do make those changes often. Now, changes to the CPT code set are considered through an open editorial process, which is managed by, of course, the CPT editorial panel. This is all based out of Chicago, yay, that collects the broad input 
from the healthcare community and beyond to ensure that the CPT content reflects the coding demands of digital health, precision medicine, augmented intelligence, and other aspects of a modern healthcare system. This rigorous editorial process keeps the CPT code set current with contemporary medical science and technology so it too can fulfill its vital role as the trusted language of medicine today and the code to its future. So go ahead and write in these new CPT codes into your code book or print these codes out and paste them on the pages or keep them as a handy reference until next year's new code book is released. And finally, I focus season six's spark on vision and leadership. I want this sixth season spark to be filled with the world's thought leaders, writers, artists, philosophers, everyone who inspires the need for vision and leadership in all we strive to do. So in this week's inspiring quote in Spark is from Adlai E. Stevenson. We can chart our future clearly and wisely only when we know the path which has led to the present. Absolutely true, right? I think this quote inspires us, reminds us that by keeping our eyes bright and keen on everything we do today leads to our better tomorrows. It tells us to stay true to ourselves, to learn, to grow every step of the way. I am happy Adlai E. Stevenson's spark still burns brightly in all of us today. So that wraps up today's episode. And as always, I appreciate you all diving into today with me. If you want more information from me, please go ahead and follow me on LinkedIn. I'll leave links to everything in the show notes below. Please have an amazing week ahead and please continue staying safe and healthy and definitely happy. Thank you so much for listening in on today's very special episode. And I hope every week with me brings you closer to helping your providers paint a masterpiece. See you next Wednesday.